We're back to the Red Letter Study. Can you believe it? It's been a while. It's been about uh, six weeks, I believe, because we had Christmas, a couple of Christmas messages, and then after the first of the year, started talking about a lot of things that were related to just basically considering the nature of our spiritual journeys, our spiritual inquiry, if you want to think of it that way. It is kind of an inquiry, isn't it? I mean, we are asking questions. We are chasing things down. We're trying to understand what is this all about, you know? If we're saying that we're not just physical creatures, what is this unseen part and how do we deal with it? You know, what is our actual relationship to spirit? That's what we've been trying to uh, just parse through and understand. And it had to do with really dealing with uncertainty and mystery and paradox. Because we, and the church has been very complicit in this, would love to believe that everything is under our control. We really want that, don't we? More or less, we want everything to be under our control. And in terms of, of a, a spiritual inquiry or a spiritual journey, the church has laid a, a map out for us that looks great because it seems like it's under our control. And it deals with intellectual belief, legal standards, and then ritual practice or ritual formula. And with those three things in place, you can kind of see how we can move along step by step on our spiritual journey and never leave the certainty of the illusion of some sort of control. Because notice the control points along that way. You know, in terms of intellectual beliefs, they're binary. It's a duality. You know, there's either a right or a wrong. And if one thing's right, then everything else is wrong. And we merely need to choose. So the certainty of knowing there is this one right answer out there that we can choose, and we better choose, makes it somewhat under our control because at least there's a certainty. The laws are the same way. The rules, they're binary. They're lawful or they're unlawful. And we need to choose between the two and perform the correct one. And with ritual, it's the same sort of thing. It's very specific. You know, depending on the church, maybe it's baptism that we need. Maybe it's saying the sinner's prayer that we need. Maybe it's confessing your sins. Maybe it's confessing publicly that Jesus is Lord. Any of those rituals, very specific. And we need to perform them. So to imagine that all the questions that we ask existentially have a right answer and a wrong answer, and we can choose between the two, that we can just follow the rules and follow the rituals, and suddenly we have this guaranteed outcome. What part of life do you know works that way? That you can just follow some formula and have a guaranteed outcome. Relationships, do they work that way? Marriages, do they work that way? Even your jobs, you can do everything right and still end up on the street, right? Where is this guaranteed outcome? Where is this formula that's under our control? that we can have this guaranteed outcome, let alone the unseen spiritual life, this existential aspect of life. How are we supposed to imagine that that is somehow certain? And then because it's certain, under some sort of control. The truth is life is uncertain, and that's what we've been talking about for the last month. And in order to live it abundantly, as Jesus said that he came to give us life and life abundantly, First, we have to learn to love what life really is and not what we would like it to be, not what we think it should be or what we imagine it to be. We need to learn to love what life is and what life is is mystery. Life is a mystery. Life is paradox. And if life is mystery and paradox, then certainly God is mystery and paradox. Spirit is mystery and paradox. You know, I know there's some of you that are already cringing inside because this is not good news, right? We should be able to have something very specific that we can deal with. And that's the way that we've been taught, especially here in the West. The East is very different. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is an Eastern man, an ancient Eastern man, speaking an Eastern language to an Eastern audience. Such a different context, so different. And so the first step in any real serious spiritual journey or spiritual inquiry is to admit that you're powerless. Just like the first step of AA. To admit that you're powerless over uncertainty. That's our, 
Certainty is our drug of choice from a human perspective. So to admit, admit that you're powerless over that, you don't have it in your power to create certainty that's not there. And once you do that, then you can start to embrace the humility, the vulnerability, and the dependence that we all share as human beings. Like it or not, that's who we are. And I always like to remind myself, I'm just this fragile creature walking around living life under a death sentence. What does that do for your, <laughs> for your arrogance and for your, your idea of, of, uh, of independence? But even within that, we can have the abundant life because we're letting go of the things that are not under our control and only dealing with the things that are. That is the recipe for abundant life. Now, how do we do this? Well, in here, it's always going to come back to contemplative practice, of course. What is contemplative practice all about? It's about experiencing the moment without the control that is imposed or imagined by our egoic minds, that, that consciousness that is always talking to ourselves, to step away from that, to experience the possibility of a moment without that voice in our head, allows us to see who we really are and not just who we constantly project ourselves to be, imagine ourselves to be. And this is the way of Jesus. This is it. This way of Jesus is a way of stepping further and further away from anything that would distract us from the moment, anything that would create these egoic illusions of control. Because our relationship with God is out of control. And that's a good thing. Don't you like thrill rides? That's when you feel most alive. You know? You're just along for the ride. Can we enjoy the ride? Choosing what we get to choose, but realizing that the big things are out of our control. This is the paradox of human life, the paradox of human nature. If we can't make friends with it, we will always be living our life in stress and anxiety, always be living ourselves in moral distress, the gap between the way things are and the way we think they should be. This is the way of Jesus. Unfortunately, we have remade Jesus in our own image, right? We don't want to deal with the real Jesus because that's too frightening. So we've remade him in our old image. We've controlled Jesus too. His looks, he looks like us. He looks like a white guy. I mean, we know that he wasn't, but that's understandable because wherever you go in the world, if, if you're talking about Jesus in Ethiopia, he's black. If he's in China, he's Asian. And if he's here, he's white and so on and so forth. So we all co-opt Jesus and that's fine because we want to feel like he's part of us. We want to feel like he's family. More problematic though is that when we start to co-opt his worldview, the way that he thinks, then things start actually getting difficult for us. The language that he used, the worldview, when we create that into a safe and familiar place, now we are blunting his message. It doesn't have the ability to shock us out of this illusion that our minds are putting on us. How safe do you think Jesus really was to his first followers? These are the people that understood the worldview the best, the language the best. These are the people we're trying to step into their sandals in order to understand Jesus the best. And yet, he was blowing their minds constantly. You can imagine them just wearing out sometimes. Jesus, can't you just be normal? Can't you just be the way that we understand? Because he's always pushing them, pushing them to the next thing and the next thing after that. They could never really pin him down. They could never really figure him out right to the cross they didn't understand. It wasn't until Pentecost that finally things broke through to them and they were able to move through to a different understanding of the way Jesus is. In their lifetime, in his lifetime, Jesus was always shocking, always surprising, always outrageous, right? And always mysterious. There was a part of Jesus that they could never quite touch, put under the control of their minds. Now they knew that he loved them. That was not a question at all. But even his love was outrageous. He pushed that to the limit 
told them they're supposed to love the enemy. Their culture told them they were supposed to hate the enemy. Their culture told them they shouldn't forgive anybody unless that person came and did everything that they needed to do to make restitution and amends and apologies and so on and so forth. Their honor and shame culture wouldn't allow that. And Jesus says, just turn the other cheek. Extend your love so far as again to be shocking, to be mysterious. This is the Jesus that we're dealing with. We know that he loves us, but even his love confronts us as well. And so for us here as modern Westerners, the first thing that we need to do is to be able to come to terms with an Eastern Hebrew Jesus. And once you do, once you really see him in his context, then you realize he is a contemplative He is a mystic. And now we're going to have to deal with those words and deal with the bias and deal with the fear that stands behind them. And if you were raised or had spent any time in an evangelical church that's conservative, you realize mystic, mysticism, those are four-letter words. They're equated with occultism, which is equated with Satanism, and it's nothing that you ever deal with. But all a mystic is is someone who does what we're talking about is able to have a complete presence-to-presence encounter with nothing in the way, just complete and full connection that exists beyond words, beyond rationality, just pure connection. Contemplative practice is the way, the tools by which we can teach ourselves and allow ourselves to have mystical experiences that you've already had. We've talked about those, those moments where you're just so present there is no longer a thought in your head. That's a mystical experience. Whether it's just a sunset or the baby laid on your chest, whatever it is, we know what those feel like. But do we need the moment to be intense enough to create them in us, or can we move into them and have those kind of connection points with the most ordinary, mundane, and seemingly insignificant moment of our lives? That's what the contemplative way is taking us. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. And we will never know Jesus until we walk his way, actually do it, not read about it, not understand it and experience this out-of-controlness, this beautiful out-of-controlness that takes place when we are in this contemplative state. This is what we're talking about in terms of really becoming a follower of Jesus. And as we get back to this red-letter study in Matthew 6, right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, where he is redefining righteousness, we want to look at this again from this point of view, from trying to understand how Jesus is pulling us away from the control points that our mind or even our churches, our faith, our religion would like to place as, as options of control, pull us out of that so that we can really free fall into this experience with God. And right here, what he's doing, he's redefining righteousness in chapter 6. In chapter 5, he redefined the law. Here he's redefining righteousness. And to the Jews of that time, righteousness was measured in three ways. It was almsgiving, charitable giving, did you give to the poor? It was prayer, and it was fasting. Those were the three ways that you proved your righteousness in that culture. And Jesus is going to take each one of them in turn. We did almsgiving before Christmas. Today we're going to talk about prayer. And this is where he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, in Matthew, nobody asks him, to teach us to pray. But in Luke's version, he does. At Luke 11, the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And then he gives them the Our Father. Here there's a little bit more going on, a little more context, but not the question. So let's take a look at Matthew 6, starting right at verse 5. And let's see what this passage looks like. Remember, he is redefining righteousness. He's just gone through how their way of giving to the poor should be different from the hypocrites, from the Pharisees who make a big show out of everything because they want people to know just how righteous they are. He says you do it in secret. He's going to say the same thing here. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand up and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. And he's going to move into the Lord's Prayer proper. Just in that section, look at all the allusions to contemplative prayer. Did you see them? Did you spot them? When you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. Actually, the Aramaic would suggest lock your door. I like that. Go into your inner room and lock the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. Here is that secret, unseen, mysterious, uncontrollable God. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then at the end, your Father knows everything that you need even before you ask him. Are you starting to parse that with me and see what he's talking about? Now, physically, the Jews usually had a prayer space in their homes. It could be up on the roof, or maybe it was an actual room that you had a door that you could shut. And what he's saying is both literal and figurative. Because what the Pharisees were doing is they'd go out to the street corners. There were set times of prayer, three set times of prayer during the day. And the Pharisees would make sure that they were in the busiest places at that time so that they could make a big show of how they would stop and pray. And maybe we'd say, ooh, look look how righteous they are. Jesus says, make sure you're nowhere near a public space. Go back to your home. Be in that inner room, that, that, that secret room. Shut the door. But he's also talking spiritually as well. Retreat into your inner space. Retreat beyond the mind that is constantly thinking and talking to you and distracting you. Come beyond that. Lock that inner door. And just be. Be in presence It's not public. But it's also not just a ritual either. Yes, the bells are going to ring every, you know, so many hours. Yes, you need to go and pray. But don't just make it a ritual. And don't always make it petitionary either. Always asking for something. He says, like the Gentiles do. Because so much of prayer, especially in the ancient world, it's so much of prayer anytime, right? It's just human nature. It's asking for things. We all need things. We all want things. And when we get under stress and duress, then we need more and want more. And we're always asking for things. The ancients were asking for the success of their crops. They were asking for the success of their armies. They were asking for the success of bearing children. All the things that they needed to survive, of course. And these prayers were ritualized. Festivals were ritualized around these agricultural dates and so on and so forth. And they were very elaborate, especially in the, uh, in the Canaanite religions, very elaborate ways of praying to the gods that involved all sorts of very you know, cutting and, and words. Do you remember the, the scene with Elijah at Mount Carmel where he has the showdown with the priest of Baal? And so he creates, he says, okay, you make an altar and you put your, your ox on it, your sacrifice, and I'll make another altar and I'll put my ox on it. And we'll both call out to our God and you don't put any fire to this, this sacrifice. The fire that comes down from your God, that's the one who is the real God. And so the, he says, you guys go first. And so they do their thing and uh, they go from morning until noon and they're jumping around the altar and they're yelling and then he mocks them at noontime. He says, hey, maybe your God is still asleep. Maybe he didn't hear you. Can you speak a little louder, please? And so they go until dusk doing the same thing, and of course nothing happens. This is the kind of vain repetition that Jesus is talking about. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. You don't even have to speak it. It's okay if you do, but don't do it over and over and over again. There's nothing for it. To retreat into your inner room, to close and lock the door, is a whole different way of praying that Jesus is trying to get them to understand. Not ritual, not petitionary. This prayer to gain favor of a God who already loves us is something that we don't need to put a lot of words or energy to. And so you've got this inner room, you've got this secret father, you know, When we know what to look for in the Gospels, this contemplative practice, we're going to see it everywhere. It's all over the Gospels. Jesus is teaching us this contemplative way. And so he gives us this prayer 
Now, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is made of words, obviously, but the words are only pointers to something else. We've ritualized it, of course. We recite it. We recite it every, every Sunday ourselves. But we've missed its significance in many ways. We've made the prayer an end in itself when all it is intended to do is point to, point to, another way of living living life. It's like everything that Jesus gives us, everything that Jesus teaches, is not simply to be understood in our minds. It's meant to be lived out. The Lord's Prayer is a model for the way of Jesus. It's a model for living life in the awareness of this connection that we have with God's Spirit. This is what's really going on in the Lord's Prayer. Some of you have heard me recite the Lord's Prayer in a, in a version of Aramaic. And uh, I'm going to do that again now, just, just so you have a sense in, in my poor pronunciation of, of kind of the, the otherness of the prayer and the way that it sounds. Avund vashmaya, nitkarashmach, tetiamalchutha, nevi semyanach, akana devashmaya afbara, havlan lachma, tesun kanan yomana. Now that was a a version. <laughs> I'd probably say a gringo version of Syriac, which is not the dialect that Jesus would have spoken in his Galilean dialect, most likely. But it starts to get you into the ballpark. You know, there is an otherness to Jesus culturally that we don't really see anymore because we're so familiar with the Gospels in English. We're so familiar with this prayer in English. But to hear it again in another language is starting to move us in a direction where we can start to lay down some of our preconceptions and realize that this is coming from a very different place. And we need to be sensitive to that. We need to start giving some kind of credence to where this is trying to take us. If it feels familiar, then we're not being moved the way Jesus needs to move us. There are five lines in the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is really a summation of everything that Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels. This process or this way of living life in kingdom, as he calls it. The attitude that we have toward life that is kingdom. Let's take a look at the first line. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, we're so used to the King James Version. That's what we recite here. This is going to, the English portion here that's in your inserts, they're in your inserts if you want to take a look. The English portion is directly translated from the Aramaic. Um, this would be the Syriac. And so it's going to read a little different than you're used to. Underneath that, I've done a paraphrase, and what I did was just take a look at all the different ways that this line can be translated. And it's so important to realize that in an ancient Semitic language like Aramaic, there is no one translation. It's not just a word for word that's going to get it. Now, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is a perfectly good translation of Avundavashmaya. Same idea, nitkarashmach. That is a good translation. But there are so many different layers of meaning in Aramaic, so many different ways that the words can be translated. And since they're in a root and pattern system, which means that there are root, two-letter root words that then you add another letter to, becomes a child root, and you add another letter to, and it becomes a word. And each one of those letters has meaning. Each one of those letters has context. And so you have this intricate system of meaning, which means there's all sorts of shades and ways that this, can, this word and these phrases can be translated. What I did in the paraphrase was take a look at all of the ones that I could find, knowing what the words meant in that context, and created a possible paraphrase. But there could be dozens of different ones, and there are dozens of different ones that you can look up and find if you want to. But how about this one? Our creator and parent of all. All creation carries the signs of your love, 
desire, and purpose by which you were known. We clear a special place for you, for your love, desire, and purpose in our hearts and lives. How in the world did I get that from our Father in heaven? Hallowed be your name. Just really quickly, just to take a look, each word in the, in the phrase is significant. Our Father. Now, first of all, if Jesus had used Ab here, that means Father. If he used Abba, that would be the diminutive. That would be the familiar or the, the intimate form that maybe a child would use for a parent, Abba and Ima, for Ab and M. But he didn't use that word. He used Avun. You still have the A-B at the beginning, but that suffix on the end opens it up. It universalizes it. It turns this father into the father of all, the creator of all, a cosmic parent. It no longer even really has gender. Yes, it can be translated father, but it really could be, it's just as easily translated mother. But the idea is that it's bigger than that. It's the father of everything. It is the creator of everything. That's why it's our father and not my father. If he had said Ab or Abba, it would be my father, my daddy. But Avun, that means our father. And that is significant because heaven, in heaven, is going to start to tell us something about this father. Heaven, Shemaya, as opposed to earth, is the place of unity and oneness. It's the place of, of God's throne. It's the connection of everything as opposed to the individual form and function, the diversity of earth. It's as if heaven is a wave Earth are particles. Human beings were understood to live between heaven and earth, between the oneness of unity and the individual form and function and diversity that we see every day in earth. And our job as human beings was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. In other words, to merge the two, to be able to be in balance between dealing with all the diversity and all the individuality that we see and inhabit and need as a human being on this earth, but behind that to understand the unity and the connection of everything. And so this cosmic parent is not in heaven in, in terms of in a space, but those are the attributes of this God. He is oneness, unity, connection, everything. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name, hallowed be your name. Holy, Kadash means to dedicate. It means to set aside. It means to use for only one thing and not let anything else defile it. It is held pure. It is held in this place. And your, his name, the name Shem, can mean, in, interest, interestingly, can mean light, sound, or vibration. But in this context, the name is not just the appellation. It's not just a word that is attached to someone. It is the essence of that person. It's the character. It's the reputation, if you will. It's everything that that person is about. And Hebrew names contained that. Hebrew names had the essence of the person attached to them. And so this Shemaya, this oneness, this unity is the essence of the Father. And if we dedicate ourselves to that oneness and that unity, this is what's going on in that first line. Our creator and parent of all, all creation carries the sign of your love, desire, and purpose by which you are known. We clear a special place for you, for your love, desire, purpose in our hearts and in our lives. This is how, yeah, we're doing a paraphrase here. Yeah, we're getting further away from the actual line itself. But all of that meaning is included in those words. That would resonate with the original audience in that culture. It doesn't with us. In fact, many are going to see this as a violation of the way that responsible biblical translation is done. But we're trying to get into the minds of the people who wrote this scripture, who uttered it so that we can understand what they were trying to say. They were playing by these rules, not our rules. The scripture wasn't written for our culture. It was written for the culture in which it was born. And so what Jesus is really talking about here is clearing a space, setting aside or sanctifying a space as we go into our inner room and dedicate that space within, space within to presence, to this connection with God. That's what hallowed be thy name means. Setting a place for that essence, 
within, to connect with it. How do we do that with the four S's of contemplative practice? Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity that we've talked about. Even the word pray itself in Aramaic, selah, has in its roots the idea of a hunter who lays a snare in the forest, covers it over with leaves and twigs and then retreats into a blind and waits expectantly for something to happen. That inclining toward is what Selah means. That's why they equated it with prayer, because to them prayer was inclining toward, waiting with every hair trigger expectantly for something to happen, for presence to connect. This is the idea that's going on here. So here in the West, we think of prayer as filling a space, right? We're going to fill our minds with prayer, we're going to fill the room with sounds of our prayer. But in Hebrew, it's about clearing a space, opening it up, unlearning, emptying ourselves out, preparing for a filling, but not filling it ourselves. We're not under the control of filling. All we can do is clear the space and then let the filling happen very different experience. And this is the contemplative process. In the second line, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. And then a paraphrase, may your desire and purpose become as real in our hearts and lives as they are in yours. Your kingdom come, kingdom to Jesus, Malkutha, does not mean a political kingdom. It doesn't mean a territory. It doesn't mean a space. It has nothing to do with that. Even though, yes, they would say enter kingdom, that would be an idiomatic phrase. You don't enter kingdom. You actually become kingdom. The closest that we would have to kingdom in our language would be the reign, R-E-I-G-N of God, the principles by which the king would reign. It, again, is talking about the essence of the king. What is it that the king brings to his people, that governs them. What are those principles? That is what kingdom is. It's a state of being. It's an attitude. And then your will be done. Sebiana, which literally doesn't, it doesn't mean, well, it can mean will in the way we think of will, but really it's will in the sense of deepest purpose, desire, delight, all of that. What is the greatest desire of God? What is the deepest purpose? What delights God the most? That's Semyana. It's also his will. It's what he will do. But he does it not just to fulfill something. It's what he would love to do. What do you love to do? That's your will. That's your Semyana. This really is a line of Jewish poetry that repeats phrases in meaning, concepts, your kingdom come, your will be done is saying exactly the same thing because kingdom and will are exactly the same thing. The principles by which the king rules and reigns are what give him the greatest delight and desire and purpose. That is it. It's the same thing. So kingdom and will, if we can enter into that bargain, if we can make our will equal to God's will, if we can become delighted and desire the same thing that God does, while we live here still between heaven and earth, then we're identifying with God. And that experience that we have to live and to know God in terms of intimate experience, yada, that is connecting with God's purpose and will and delight. And make no mistake, God's will is always a how and not a what. We want to think of God's will in terms of what we do. God's will is how we do what we do. But now you can see, may your desire and purpose become as real in our hearts and lives as they are in yours. And so this second line is enjoining us to match God's desire, to delight in the same thing that God delights in. The third line, give us the bread of our need this day. Different way of of uh, translating that line, right? Paraphrase, help us to see that everything we need for this day, this moment, is contained in this day and this moment and nowhere else. And so we've got the word bread, lachma. 
the bread of our need this day. Everything in Hebrew thought and Hebrew practice focuses on this day, this life, here and now. We are obsessed and focused on the next life, on there then, or we're focused on some outcome that we're trying to achieve. But the Hebraic mind is focused here now. To this day, Jews are focused on this life here and now. Salvation to a Jew is nothing about the next life. It's about spiritual liberation, liberation from fear right here and right now in this life. Completely changes the notion of salvation. Completely changes all the passages we read about salvation if we suddenly realize that those who wrote this scripture had that in mind when they used the word that it was here and now, a spiritual liberation here and now. Everything that we need is focused here and now. God is only accessible here and now, in this moment. Nowhere else. I like to say God is always going to be found at the intersection of here and now. Is that where you are? Because that's where God will be. And God is the source of all sustenance, all provision, right here and right now and nowhere else. Which is the the problem for us, because if a moment is painful, what do we want to do? We want to jump off the stove, right? We want to flee the moment. But if we flee a painful moment, we're also at the same time fleeing any possible healing that we could get, because it's only going to be in God's presence. We're fleeing from the healing as well. To lean into the moment, even if it's a difficult one, is the way through and the way that we are going to find that healing. Help us see that everything we need for this day, this moment, is contained in this day and this moment and nowhere else. He's enjoining us, encouraging us, immerse in the moment. The moment is everything. This moment, this day, this life is everything. The sustenance you need. And lachma bread does not just mean physical bread. It's all provision, everything that we need, mental, emotional, physical, relational. It's all here and now or nowhere. Forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. Paraphrase, release from us all that binds us and keeps us from your deepest purpose, your kingdom. And remind us that it is in our own releasing of the pain and resentment we hold toward others that we find our own release in you. To forgive, subkana in Aramaic, is the, shares the same root word with the word for liberation or freedom. In the Hebrew mind, to be forgiven is to be set free. And to be set free is to be forgiven. And this idea of a debt, chobain, can be any imbalance that occurs in a relationship or in a life. If you owe a debt to somebody, that's an imbalance in the, in the relationship. It used to be two peers, but now you've got a creditor and a, creditor and a debtor, and so there's an imbalance. If a person harms another person, there's an imbalance in the relationship. If you become sick, you now have an imbalance in your own life. If you have any other problem that is haunting you from the past, a trauma or something that keeps you limited, you have an imbalance. Everything needs to be brought back into balance again. That is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is restoring the person back to the way they were before the imbalance took place. And that's where the freedom comes from, to be freed from that imbalance, freed from that fear, that limitation that occurs. This is a release from the past. And it also is a release from all those unconscious programs that we've talked about before. Everything that gets instilled in us from childhood on that are now limiting us and keeping us less than we could be, keeping us out of balance. To be released from all of that is also what Jesus is talking about. It's freedom from victimhood, right? We've been made victims. Are we staying victims, though? Or are we realizing that we have a choice that we can make? We can choose freedom. We have to do the work, but we can choose it if we wish. Sometimes we need help. Are we willing to get that help? All of that. And this is release from victimhood that's either either caused by ourselves or caused by others. Sometimes we do to ourselves what we can't forgive ourselves for, what keeps us in that imbalance. And it's important to realize that this forgiveness is not legal. 
It's not something that needs to happen before God approves of us. It's relational. It's interior. This forgiveness is the restoration of the self to your own balance. In the two verses right after the section that he gives us that we're going to talk about next week, he has this really troubling line that if you forgive your brother, then God in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, neither will God in heaven forgive you. And it starts to sound like God's love, God's forgiveness is suddenly conditional again. We must perform like trained seals in order to get what God has to give us. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we'll talk more about it next week. But just so that you know that you are the only person in heaven or on earth who can allow yourself to be forgiven. Nobody else can do it for you. You're already as forgiven as you want to be. From God's point of view, everything is in balance. From God's point of view, you are in perfect relationship with him, with her. But you will never experience that. You will never live as if that's true until you put down your arms, until you allow yourself to be free again. It is our responsibility. The onus is on us. God has already chosen for us, chosen us. Will we choose him back? This is that release. Release from the past is this fourth step of the Lord's Prayer. And then finally, do not let us enter into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Of course, that idea of lead us not into temptation is a really bad translation of this because it implies that God is the one doing it. But James tells us flat out, God does not tempt anyone. That's not God's job. God doesn't do that. Why would God do that? It's not about that. But here's the paraphrase. Do not let us be diverted from our true purpose and deliver us from the inability to become complete and one with you and with each other. The idea of a temptation is a trial or a test. Anything, any adversity that comes our way, any challenge that comes our way is a temptation in this sense. So not to be allowed to fail at the temptation is exactly the same as deliver us from evil. We have again that bit of Hebrew poetry repeating the same concept. So to understand, lead us not into temptation or do not let us enter into temptation is the same as delivering us from evil, delivering us from the ongoing distraction that is always going to occur in life. To realize that unity is already here, that God's presence is already here, versus the separation that we see. In other words, heaven has come to earth in the sense that God's unity is already here, permeating all of the separation and diversity that we see. To realize that, to be present to that, is what this is all about. But there's going to be constant diversions, constant distractions. We're going to get scared and we're going to want to run back to the last time that we felt secure, even if it was with the illusion of control and certainty. That's going to be a very, very strong temptation. This part of the prayer is asking us not to be diverted by that fear, not to be diverted from the present moment, to become mature, to become ripe, whole, and complete which is what taba, goodness, means, as opposed to bisha, evil, which means unripeness, immaturity. You know, It's not bad and lock up and throw away the key. It's just, hey, this person is not yet ready for prime time. That's what bisha means. But to become taba, to become mature and ripe and whole and complete, to become integrated with God's purpose is what this whole process is going to do with us. Right? As we clear a space and match God's desire, immerse in the moment, get released from the past and everything that limits us, and then find that realization of unity in the present. This is the process of the prayer. So think about those steps to clear a space, to start to develop a practice in your life, to assign and dedicate time in your life for quieting the noise, for stepping away from everything that you've taken for granted is you, your own identity, is the way the world works, and allow yourself to actually question that and to experience something apart from all of that, is clearing the space and opening up a possibility 
That's what truth means in Aramaic. It is the possibility of something different, something new, opening a door. Knowing the truth is opening a door that will ultimately make you free. And then secondly, allowing that presence, once you start to see what this presence really is, what it's really all about, can't be put into words, but as you experience it, you can start aligning with that desire. You realize you're losing nothing in life by aligning with God's desire and to love the things that God loves and to allow yourself to be animated by that essence and that you find that it is always in the moment, immersing in the moment. There is no connection anywhere else except here and now. And as you move through that process and keep coming back to immersion in the moment with your space cleared, with your desire becoming more and more aligned with God's, all that stuff from the past can bubble up and be dispersed. We can be released from those things. There's a line from a movie that said, as you get older, things don't seem so important. Remember all the things that seemed so important a decade or two decades ago? Suddenly, do they seem so important anymore? Things that you've been carrying around for years or decades, unforgiveness, hurt, it just doesn't seem so important anymore. As you move into this new attitude, as you move into this space, it happens as a byproduct of you just showing up. It's not trying to get these things gone. It's showing up. Now, obviously, some of us are going to need clinical help. That's okay. This works perfectly in concert with clinical help in terms of getting rid of those ancient limitations and traumas from the past. But this is a natural process that will do it as well so that we can realize that God's unity is right here in the present and we can remain undiverted. As life happens, as trauma happens, we won't be so scared that we'll run back to old patterns. We will stay with this and not fall back. This is the process. Five steps of living life in a different way that will take us into kingdom, that will become kingdom in our lives. It's just like ask, seek, and knock. That was a process. We don't see it that way, but to ask and seek and knock, when Jesus says ask, you know, and it'll be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it'll be opened, that also is a process. And even the word belief or faith, when you find it in the Bible, if you look at it either in the Greek or in the Aramaic, that word always contains all three elements of belief, idea, faith, action, and trust, experience. It's a process as well. We have the idea. We live and choose and act as if it's true. And then we have the experience of its truth or not. And then we have trust. And that turns into a conviction, not certainty, but a conviction. These are all processes that are saying the same basic thing. There is a way to the Father in this life so that we can live abundantly but it starts with admitting that we are powerless over this uncertainty and that we can clear a space and find a presence that will take us through. We have to realize that we are not saved by the intellect. We are not saved by the law. We are not saved by ritual. We are not saved by spoken words. To say the Lord's Prayer as if it's some sort of talisman, you know, some sort of rabbit's foot against evil. That's just a superstitious way and trying to assert control again. But to understand what's going on and to remember that salvation in our Bible does not mean entrance into heaven and avoidance of hell, but it means liberation right here and right now. That's not going to happen by our minds. That's not going to happen by what we think. It's not going to be happening by keeping rules or doing ritual practice. It's not going to work that way. It's going to be the spiritual liberation that comes as we are saved from fear. And we are saved from fear by actually knowing who this God is. Not intellectually, but experientially. To live with this God. To understand the kind of love that is outrageous and shocking, but actually exists. That is what casts out the fear. So the Lord's Prayer is really the way the Lord lived his life. How 
he lived. His Shem, his name, his essence, his character, his reputation. The Lord's Prayer is how he achieved that. How his Shem became one with God's name. And how we can be one with him who is one with the Father. And if A equals B and B equals C, guess what? A equals C. This is where we're going with this. How Jesus lived looks like what we call love. And knowing God is experiencing that love. So what we're here to understand is that we need to stop saying the prayer and obviously start living the prayer. Or really better, say the prayer as a reminder of the way that we can live so that we can have the abundant life that Jesus is talking about and that he lived every day with his Father. That's our Father. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for this. This short prayer, this everything of what it means to live with you, to live in your world as you designed it, to live with a sense of freedom from fear, to live with a sense of hope that everything is going to be all right even when it looks impossible, with a sense of gratitude even when times are difficult, to be able to live with a second sight that sees the unity of heaven superimposed on this diversity and this absurdity sometimes of the world in which we live. Thank you for these five short lines. Thank you for caring enough to do everything that you did to transmit them to us, to give them to us. Now help us to see what they really are so that we can live them in a way that is life-changing. And that's what we pray today, Lord. Help us to live this prayer to transform into those who walk with you with a second sight and never let us forget. We can only do this because you did it first. And we pray all this in Jesus' Shem, his name, his essence, and his character. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand.